find our places as we kind of get ready. I've, if it's a different voice coming out of my body, it's only temporary. So I, I've got my cup of tea, and uh, maybe that'll help a little bit. I may reach into my pocket and grab a cough drop. So, you know, if I'm coughing and the microphone catches it, if you see me going for the cough, you might want to, yeah, yeah, work, work on that one. Okay, so, all right, so, you know, last week we wrapped up a four-week series, and, you know, happy Valentine's Day. We, you know, how often does that happen? It's that Valentine's Day falls on a Sunday, so um, yeah, I'm not really 100% sure I should be wishing you happy Valentine's Day, <laughs> um, but I want to talk about it a little bit today. So, you know, if you have notes, you can kind of follow along. If you glance at today's notes, you'll notice some weird stuff in the, in the notes. And uh, I felt like this is what we should talk about, so here we are. Um, you know, you may have some questions. You may not. I do. So some of the questions I have when I think about this stuff is like, where'd this holiday come from? You ever think of that? Do you ever think of where any holidays come from, by the way? Um, If you research some of that stuff, you might be surprised. Um, Who was St. Valentine, anyway? Who was that guy? What did he ever do to get a day named after him? Um, What's any of that got to do with love? What's love got to do with it? (laughs) I know. I can't sing. Okay. What's up? What's up with Cupid? And what's up with all that, that, that little guy? Why, why is he shooting everybody with arrows? Like we should wear orange vests or something, so he shouldn't do that. What's, thank you, something like that. What's, uh, what's up with the love birds? Birds. It's kind of like the Easter bunny and the eggs. What's up with that? Okay, so is this just, okay, so, you know, I'm not going crazy. Is this just our special day? To celebrate relationships, which is what we like to enjoy. It's fine. Or is there really something more to it? I mean, I'm glad you came to church on this Sunday. I mean, where, besides Google, where are you going to learn stuff like this? <laughs> so if you've ever wondered these things, you've come to the right place. Because that's what we're going to talk about for a little bit anyway. Um, I'm going to share with you some of the research I did on the history of St. Valentine's Day. And then, before we're done, we will compare that with what the Bible says about true love. And um, I, think it'll be a good, I think it'll be a good time. So let's just pray, kind of get our mind wrapped around this, and, and we'll look at some things. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for meeting with us in this time of worship. I'm so thankful for how you have proven time and time again your love toward us. We wouldn't even know how to love you if you didn't first love us. And we're so, so very thankful for that. And so, Lord, we're going to study some things and learn some things and hopefully have some fun. But at the end of the day, open our hearts. Help us to really understand what your holy word says about what love really is. That's really all that matters. It is our authority. So we pray that your spirit would come Fill our hearts and souls. Teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start out. And, and, you know, I'm going to spend a ton of time on it, but we're going to talk about the history lesson of Valentine's Day. We're going to have a little history lesson. 
Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, um, there were two subjects that I disliked more than any two subjects in the world. And one was history, and the other was English. Can I, can I get a witness? Okay, praise the Lord. So there's people with me. God, in his infinite sense of humor, placed me in this job where the two most important subjects in the world are understanding history and understanding language. And so I have surrendered to it. We're going to do a little history lesson about Valentine's Day. So St. Valentine of Rome. If you research this dude, um, supposedly he is a third century saint. And it is commemorated on February 14th. But the truth of the matter is, with very little research, you can find out quite quickly that that's not very likely. It's not very, very likely that there was one individual named Valentine that was commemorated to become a Catholic saint in the third century um, for a lot of different reasons. More likely is the story that, that this character referred to as St. Valentine is really a conflation of at least two or more different personalities. You know, back in ancient Rome, Valentine was kind of a common name. A lot of guys were named Valentine. And uh, so there's virtually nothing recorded of any one particular dude who was named Saint Valentine or who was named Valentine who became the saint. In fact, there's multiple stories, some of which place the whole origin of this thing, not always on February 14th. One of them throws it out on February 23rd. Um, but really, the most telling thing and the most interesting thing um, about all that is that if you know a little bit about church history, you know that the Roman Catholic Church really never took form, and some people move the dates a little bit, but basically we land on the date 325 A.D. And in 325 A.D. was kind of when the Roman Catholic Church began. Well, 325 is in the 4th century, so they weren't even around in the 3rd century. It was still pagan Rome back in the 3rd century, right, uh, with Emperor Constantine. And if you know a little bit about um, church history, of course, so the Roman Catholic Church are the ones that go about commemorating people who had some exemplary life and turned them into formal saints. We understand that the Bible uses the word saint differently. Anybody who's born again in Christ is called a saint, um, but the timeline doesn't work for that to have happened, actually, in the 3rd century. So I did some research. I came across a website called AmericanCatholic.org. I'm not trying to say anything about this group of people that they are not saying themselves. At, at www.americancatholic.org, it states that this holiday, although no longer celebrated as an official Roman Catholic feast day, has, and this is the, this is the phrase they use, it has both Roman and Catholic roots. Huh. So that means that it predates the real history of what we're talking about and what we celebrate on February 14th has roots that go prior to the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church, again, in the beginning of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine would have taken, you know, the, the, the Roman armies in battles time and again, and there was one famous battle. It's called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. It was in 312, and that was the famous battle when Constantine, you may remember the story, saw the sign. He got a vision, supposedly, 
And the vision he got was the sign of a cross. And it was really, if you've ever seen it, in the way the Catholics sometimes use it, it didn't look like the cross that we use where the bottom sticks out further. It looked more like a plus sign. And he sees the sign of a cross, and he hears this voice, supposedly, that tells him, by this you shall conquer. And so Constantine, you know, he's jazzed about this because he's all about conquering. And so they take the sign of the cross, and they put it on their, their uniforms. They put it on their shields, and they go to battle fighting under the sign of the cross. And then that rolled into saying, hey, this is working out for us. Let's, let's turn this thing and make this Christianity the state religion. And, and the history of the church is its own story, not for today. But what happened is, at that time in history, and you have to kind of be careful. You have to understand how the devil works and how the Lord works and how history works. But what happened is, is that Rome as a world power, which is, by the way, if you study the history of the nations through the scriptures, most specifically coming through the book of Daniel, the history of the nations leads up to, you know, you have Babylon and Media Persia and Greece and then Rome. And there are no more nations listed after Rome. Everybody wants to talk about, well, what about the United States or what about England or what about Russia? Why aren't they in the scriptures? Well, it's interesting because Rome is the ultimate and final world power. They were the force politically ruling the world at the time of Jesus Christ. And they will be the force politically ruling the world at the time of Jesus Christ coming again. But the, the way that they flipped the switch was in the 4th century, Constantine, with this master move, changed what was the pagan Roman Empire into what is now called the Holy Roman Empire. And so they began to take things that were going on in pagan Rome, in ancient mythology, and then they just put a Christian twist on it, and they put a spin on it, okay? So... What are the Roman roots of Valentine's Day? Well, this is a pagan holiday that would have predated the Roman Catholic Church. It would have been referred to as, I may mispronounce it, but from a Latin base, it would have been Lupercalia. Okay? This is something that was celebrated in mid-February in Rome. From the 13th to the 15th of Rome, of February, I'm sorry, uh, typically it was celebrated and it was referred to as an ancient festival to avert evil spirits and to release health and fertility. Sounds good, whatever. So according to Roman mythology, there's this guy who was called Lupercus. And, you know, the Latin word lupo really means wolf, okay? But it's, he, he, he was the god of the shepherds. So I think that's weird that the wolf is the god of the shepherds, but that's what they're saying. Again, it was mythology. Those guys were different. Okay, so the priests of Lupercus. You guys are like, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, hang with me. The priests of Lupercus wore goat skins. Now, for some of you that have some history in church history, some of this stuff's going to ring true to you for certain levels, and I'm not going to go into it all. But okay, so these priests... Otherwise naked, wore just goat skins, okay? That was the priest's garb. And on what they called the Ides of February, typically it fell about the 13th, they would take a goat and they would take a dog 
and they sacrificed them, and they would salt meal cakes that were then burned by Vestal virgins. Who are they? Okay, all right. Well, a Vestal virgin is a priestess of the goddess Vesta, who is the goddess of the hearth. Okay, so, you know, look, mythology, just remember this, guys. Okay, if you ever, do, they, do you guys still study mythology at all in high school? Do you get that? Not anymore? Good. Okay, good. Just know this. Mythology starts with the word myth, okay? That ought to set straight. Okay, so this Lupercalia thing, although they're saying, look, we want to protect our, our, our cattle, we want to protect our flock, and we want to, you know, do these sacrifices unto the God of the shepherds so that we will preserve our flock and have good health and all those kinds of a thing. Very superstitious practices in the pagan world, okay? So I researched out an article. And this article, if you want to check it out, is by, in, out of Christianity Today. It was published on February 1st of year 2000. And I like the title of the article. It was called, Then Again, Maybe Don't Be My Valentine. And the reason is, is because they really, un- they, they came to reveal that Lupercalia, the way that it was really celebrated in ancient Rome, is that it was really just kind of a pagan love fest. Really, it was, you could, you could consider it a sexual lottery. And what they would do is, they would put, like, names of girls in a box, and the guys would come and draw a name. And if he draws your name, then those two would have their physical relations for an entire year until next year at Lupercalia. And then, you know, we start over and we draw a new name. And for the next year, they would have somebody else. And, and this is grotesque. Uh, it's ridiculously sensual and sinful. Uh, but that, is, that was where it came from. That was really how it played out. Um, I, you know, in, in the spirit of connecting pop songs, this is old now, it was pop when I was young. There was a song in 1970 put out by a guy named Stephen Stills. Some of you remember who he was. And it had a line in it that goes good with this theme here. He said, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. So, you know, listen, be careful of the stuff you listen to. Okay, so there's... This theme, right, of just this, this open, free, orgiistic fest that went on in mid-February. Well, how did that all translate somehow to be a saint? How did that all come together? Well, again, the, the Roman Empire, when they took this hat off and put this hat on, they began to venerate or commemorate different things that went on in, in the pagan empire. You see, they didn't want to just alienate. They're not just going to stand for the Bible and alienate the masses and masses of people that they had in their conquest. They wanted to bring them in under the Roman umbrella. So they just kind of Christianized a lot of things that were very pagan so that everybody could keep doing what they were doing. They just put a Christian name on it, and they were kind of okay. Okay, so there's a guy named Geoffrey Chaucer, and he's probably one of the most famous English poets of the 14th century. Maybe you've heard of him. And he had a famous poem... And it's called The Parliament of Fowls. And in it, there was this quote, which kind of helped to popularize this idea of celebrating St. Valentine's Day. 
So in Chaucer's poem in the 14th century, among the lines of the poem, it says this. For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. Okay, so he kind of connected St. Valentine's Day with the season that happened to be the season, mid-February, where the birds happened to begin to mate. And so, hence, love birds, and hence the popularization among a broader non-Catholic audience. So now Chaucer, because he's so well-respected and read, kind of puts it out there so the Protestant world begins to kind of embrace this whole idea. So, you know, isn't that sweet? I mean, isn't that fun? I mean, what's, what's the harm in that, you know? Cute little lovebirds and, you know, that's awesome. Well, you know, you probably knew. It gets worse. So, in Roman mythology, there's this dude named Cupid who is actually the Roman god of love. Now, for those of you that have studied a little bit of mythology, sometimes you get confused, right? Because there was Greek mythology and there was Roman mythology. And, you know, it was kind of the same system, but they had different names, right? So the Greek equivalent of Cupid was a guy named Eros, E-R-O-S. And Eros, right, would be one of the Greek words for love. It would be the erotic version of love, right? Phileo like Philadelphia, would be like the brotherly version of love, right? Agape, we typically refer to the divine aspect of unconditional love, right? But Eros would be the Greek god of love. And so Cupid is the Roman version of that. And he's typically pictured as a little naked baby with wings flying around shooting people with arrows. Should have put something on the screen with that. But whatever, you got the picture, right? Which I always thought was weird. Okay, but if Cupid shoots you with a golden-tipped arrow. You have no control. You fall prey to this intense desire. If he happens to shoot you with a lead-tipped arrow, I don't hear about this part much, then, you know, your desire goes away. So I guess that's the antidote. I don't know. But, you know, Cupid has this power, and, oh, you know, I can't help myself. Okay. So, that's who he is. And then, among these things, there was also, connected with February 14th, right, there is a celebration in honor of the goddess Juno. The goddess Juno. Who is Juno? Well, Juno is the queen of the Roman gods and goddesses. I mean, she's up there, man. She's married to Jupiter. I mean, Jupiter is the man. He's the king of the gods. Okay, she's the queen of all the gods and goddesses. The Greek version would be Zeus, like he'd be the equivalent of Jupiter. Okay, so Juno is the queen of all the gods and goddesses. She also had her own little territory, right? So she was also the goddess of women and of marriage. And... This would have been celebrated on the 14th of February, the celebration to her, which would have been the eve of the 15th, which would have been officially Lupercalia. So really, Valentine's Day has its origin as a holiday for the Queen of Heaven. 
Now, that ought to get your attention if you're a Bible believer. I mean, that phrase, the queen of heaven, ought to be something that ought to hit your radar. And if it doesn't, we're not going to go and study all this today, but I gave you the reference in Jeremiah chapter 44. So go and read Jeremiah chapter 44, and what you're going to find basically is this story. Jeremiah, you probably remember, prophesies at a time when Israel is in great apostasy and they're about to go into captivity. The judgment is coming. And he's prophesying against Israel for their sin and hard-heartedness and their unwillingness to submit to God and to his word. Among the different things that they were doing wrong is, in Jeremiah 44 specifically, they were offering um, an, an offering of incense and a drink offering to this character called the Queen of Heaven. And, and they kept doing it. And Jeremiah prophesies, and the Lord through Jeremiah tells him, you better knock it off. And, and they say, no, we're not going to knock it off. We're going to do it. It's worked really good for us so far. And so we're going to keep offering our offerings to the Queen of Heaven. And God says, enough. In Jeremiah 44, he kind of just says, that's it. We're drawing the line in the sand. We're done. Judgment is coming. Because you refuse to turn from this pagan practice of sacrificing things to this entity. And what ultimately happens is Israel goes into captivity to foreign pagan powers for at least 70 years. Okay, so that's kind of where it comes from. Now, this is not... I was unable to confirm this completely because you go so far back in history and it becomes a little more difficult to actually connect all the dots. But there are a lot of people who would say that there's, pro- there's a high probability, that's the best I can do, high probability for this little statement, so you know, take that for what it's worth, that it's really associated originally with the celebration of somebody called Queen Semiramis. And Semiramis, again, on February 14th, was celebrated... For her son, who is a Bible character you would recall by the name of Nimrod. Now, Nimrod pops up in a lot of bad stuff, by the way. He's in Genesis chapter 10. And Nimrod turns out to be in the lineage of Ham. Ham is one of Noah's three sons. Ham is the son that looked upon his father's nakedness and was his, his progeny after that was cursed as a result. And so Ham... Uh, through his lineage in Genesis chapter 10, has this fella named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod in Genesis 10 and verse 9 is referred to as a mighty hunter. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So, you know, kind of like Lupercus or the god of the shepherds, the wolf, right? And, and, And you go down and it says, Nimrod's kingdom was a place called Babel, which just in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 11 becomes a tower where they're building a tower to reach unto heaven that ultimately God comes down and judges and destroys. So Nimrod's associated with all kind of bad things that ultimately bring God's judgment. Now, so what's up with all this stuff? You may think that this is interesting. I hope so. I did. Um, You may not particularly think this is really relevant. I'm going to have a sip of my tea. Relevant to us today. But let me just tell you something. As weird as this story is, the history is what it is. Let me tell you something why it's relevant to us today. 
This is the very kind of thing that ignites Muslims to hate Christians. This is the very kind of thing that they... Now listen, when, when they say they hate Christians, they are typically thinking of the Catholic version. They are incapable of discerning any difference because those things are spiritually discerned. But they look at this monotheistic religion that celebrates pagan debauchery festivals of immorality and just just outward and opulent physical sexual interaction and it just it just incenses them and it fuels their hatred i'm not saying it's right but i'm telling you it's just crazy propagated pagan immoral behavior that might help you to at least get an idea why they're so mad. In their mind, they're holding the standard for morality. In their mind. I understand they have a lot of problems. Personally, I just think it's another fabricated holiday propagated by the flower and greeting card cartel. In 2014, in the United States of America, people spent $19 billion on candy, cards, flowers, etc. on Valentine's Day. Which is why, in solidarity with the truth, I refuse to buy my wife a Valentine's card. Come on, man. Can I get something with that? No? All right. All right. I'm, I'm, I actually bought her a card. Okay, so you're thinking, this is my first time to visit First Baptist Church, and I'm thinking it's my last. What a buzzkill. I mean, I was happy. We have candy out in the lobby. I mean, why would you talk about all that stuff today? Look. I mean, first off, I think it's, first off, because it's true. Second off, because I think it's interesting. But but I I don't care if you celebrate Valentine's Day. God bless you. I mean, really. I mean, we're not talking about Christmas and Easter yet. I mean, we're not doing that. We celebrate those things. I don't have a problem with that. I understand understand the roots of Christmas and Easter. I do. They're not really Christian. I'm sorry. But we can celebrate them for the right reason. It's okay. I understand the roots of Valentine's Day. You want to celebrate it and, and love your husband or wife? Or, I mean, that's, that's, that's outstanding. Another opportunity to demonstrate your love and buy them something or just spend the day together or whatever, that, that's wonderful. That's fine. That's okay. I don't, have a, I don't have an ax to grind. I'm not trying to ruin your day. I just want you to be informed. I want you to know some stuff. I mean, man, if you're not going to learn this stuff in church, I mean, like I said, where are you going to get it? Okay, so let's, let's transition into something a little more positive. Let's, let's, let's look at the Bible. What do you think? Let's do that. All right, second point, the Bible lesson of true love. Bible lesson of true love. With the time remaining, um, obviously, listen, love is one of the major themes of all Scripture. You know, in 25 minutes' time, you know, I had to just pick one spot. So I picked one spot where we're going to look, and we're going to see 
really what this is all about. And, and what was my goal in putting this together this week for you? Well, it's all really just to try and encourage you to remember where our authority lies as Christian people, right? I mean, this is our authority, this book, the word of the Lord, right? It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the book of life. This is the book that is God's owner's manual for everything that has to do with life. And we need to train our minds to make our decisions and understand what life is all about, not on the basis of culture, not on the basis of what's popular or people say and do, but on the basis of what God says, right? And so I want to just kind of lay out some history for you so that the stark contrast from the scriptures becomes very apparent. How you choose to celebrate or not February 14th is your business, truly. Okay, so that's what I want us to do. I want us to look into God's word, let it govern our lives. It does, by the way, warn us to avoid, you know, pagan traditions of men, right? Okay, so in the spirit of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, where it tells us that we should be speaking the truth in love, that's what we want to do, okay? Our world is full of people loving the wrong things. And the scriptures give lists of things that God tells us don't love these things. And on this list are things that we love. In 1 John 2, 15, it says, don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. Well, we live in the world, you know. Yeah, but you don't have to love the things of the world because the things of the world are not of the Lord. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 15, that we should not love unjust gain. If you gain profit from something that you have to do unrighteousness to get, don't, don't go after that. Don't love that. That is something that you are not supposed to love. 1 Timothy 6.10, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with money. I hope you have a lot of it. I don't care. Don't love it. Don't love it. That's the problem. That's, that's the snare and the, that comes and, and, and brings many sorrows into your life. Excuse me. Ready? Good job. John 3, verse 19. Men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That's a problem. People not only commit sin, they really enjoy it. You have a favorite pet sin. You got one little thing that nobody really knows about. You got that little secret thing. You, you got some little dark area in your life that it's just kind of your little secret hobby. Don't love that. Uh, John 12 and verse 43, uh, the Lord warns us not to love the praises of men. Uh, you know, listen, we, everybody likes to be encouraged. Everybody likes it when somebody says, wow, I thought you did a really good job. Wow, you're really great at what you do. Wow, I really love that music. I really like this or that. I mean, uh, everybody wants to be encouraged and told that what they're doing is valuable and helpful, of course. But it can go too far, and you can just live your life so that you are just surrounded constantly by the accolades of others. 
right? We have an entire industry in Hollywood, California that is based on that. And, I mean, just loving the praises of men is a, is a danger. It's a snare. In Luke chapter 11, verse 43, and then it's repeated again in Luke 20, verse 46, some different ways of looking at it. Basically, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And what he's basically saying is, don't love preeminence. Don't love to be exalted. Don't love position, right? The Pharisees are the ones that like the, the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at the feasts. And um, Man, these are, these are some things that they love to make prayers in the, in the city square. They wanted to be heard of many men, and they wanted everybody to notice how wonderful they are. And he says, man, you, you better not. Matthew 6 and verse number 5, he says, you don't need to love recognition. That's the prayer thing I just mentioned. Everybody recognize you for how spiritual you are, how strong you are, how talented you are, how whatever. I mean, you have to be careful of these things, and you're not supposed to love these things. That's a problem. Those things become sinful. So let's take some time and just talk a little bit about how we can illustrate. I want to illustrate for you what true love really is supposed to look like. And of all the places that I could have gone to, and there's a lot of places, and we'll see several references, uh, the base for what we're going to look at is actually what I like to do frequently when I study the Bible. If you're not aware of this technique, hopefully it'll help you. You find the first time a word that you're studying is ever mentioned in the Bible. And you find that first mention. And you study the context of how that word is used the first time God ever uses it. And what you're going to find is he sets the standard. He defines it. And he uses that definition almost exclusively. There can be exceptions. But for the most part, it defines that term, how God is going to use it throughout the rest of the scriptures. And the first time that the word love shows up in all the Bible is in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 67. That's the last verse of that chapter. And we're going to do a, a flyby on the entire chapter. But Genesis 24, 67 says, And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So let me just tell you the story of Genesis 24, because it is a great love story. Let's get a running start. I'm going to give you some background. Coming through Genesis 22 and 23, the story of Abraham and Sarah, because Isaac is their son, as you know. Abraham and Sarah are the couple that were childless for most of their adult lives. And God comes along and gives them the promise that they will have a child in their old age. And finally, they do have a child, right, when Abraham's 99 and Sarah's 89. And, uh, you know, that's pretty old, no matter how you slice it. And so God fulfilled his promise, and he did a miracle, and he, and he brought forth Isaac, their only son. And without question, Isaac is, he's their pride and joy. And, and then in Genesis chapter 22, the famous story, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son. And he takes him up on Mount Moriah, and he's going to kill him on an altar in a sacrifice to the Lord that the Lord at so the Lord gave the child and now the Lord is asking for the child back and you know the story Abraham obeys the Lord and 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 every mother and probably father understands how ridiculous 
that, how hard that would be. Could you possibly do that? How could you possibly? I remember talking with people who, would, who were not believers and considering Christianity say, but I just can't get past that story of Abraham. What kind of a God would ask such a thing? Well, there's some beautiful pictures and symbolism in that whole story. At the end of the day, you know the story. He's ready to be faithful and to do what God asked him to do. If you cross-reference some passages like in Hebrews 11, (coughs) he believed that God would raise him from the dead. He believed that if God took him, God would have to give him back because God promised that through Isaac that he would bless all the nations. So Abraham's going to go through it. He's got the knife, and he's about to kill his son, and God stops him last second. And he looks over, and he sees a ram with his horns caught in the thicket, and the ram becomes the substitutionary death, and Isaac lives on. And that's a beautiful picture of a lot of different things, but that is just some of the narrative. So, so Abraham and Sarah, they have this son. He's growing up. They're obeying the Lord because he was willing to obey the Lord and was faithful. God blesses him in many ways. And right after that story in Genesis 22 and verse 14, it says this. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Jehovah-Jireh, literally, God our provider. As Abraham saw, demonstrated in such a graphic way how God provides. He provided the son, and he provided a sacrifice so the son could continue to live. He has the ability to provide all things At all times. Amen. Then God reminds Abraham immediately after that. So you have the sacrifice. He he brings the ram. He calls him Jehovah Jireh. His mind is lined out with what's going on. Verses 17 and 18 of Genesis 22. God reminds him that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed, that's, that's Isaac, it's the only seed he has, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. And so, wow, Abraham has gone through this amazing story and all these things have happened and God has provided and, and he reminds him, this is the boy. And through him, your seed is going to populate this earth like the stars in the heaven or the sand on the seashore and all the nations will be blessed through him. And he just is reminded, God who can provide all things said that. Wow. Okay, so the narrative continues into chapter 23. And in chapter 23, it basically is the story that Sarah dies. And Abraham purchases land. He buries his wife, Sarah. So now it's just Abe and his son in Genesis chapter 24. So this is the story. Abraham seeks a wife for his son Isaac. This is Genesis chapter 24. He decides it's time. He needs to find a wife for this son so that the promise of blessing all the nations can take place. He's fully aware of God's ability to provide. So he makes a plan. If you'll follow along, I'm going to read the first nine verses of Genesis 24. And Abraham was old and well-stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, 
and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. So Abraham makes this plan. He's got this servant. He is an unnamed, highly trusted servant. He sends him on this mission. He has some parameters, and he makes it all real clear. So, so he sends him on his way. So they're tracking with the Lord and with this plan, and the servant then goes off, and, and he asks God, to lead his way. The servant asked God to lead him to find the right woman. And so we jump in in verse number 14, and this is the servant saying, and let it come to pass, he's praying, that the, that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. So the servant kind of lays out this fleece before the Lord. And he's like, look, he's traveling with this whole host of camels and wealth and all this stuff. And he's looking for the woman. And he's like, Lord, I don't know how am I going to find her. So he just says, hey, this is the deal. When I find a woman drawn from the well, I'll ask her to give me a drink, and that's all I'm going to ask her. But if she volunteers to give water to my camels, by the way, do you know how much camels can drink? A lot. And he had a lot of them. So, I mean, this girl was no stranger to hard work. A good choice, by the way. Just throwing that out there. So Rebecca shows up at the well. And the servant does what he's, he asks her for a drink. She offers to draw for the camels. This is the first girl on the scene. The servant's blown away. Wow, God answered my prayer right away. This is awesome. He starts pulling out some serious jewelry. He's giving her earrings. He's giving her bracelet rings. We could call all these engagement rings, okay? He's giving her jewelry, and uh, she's like, this is pretty cool. So then he explains the story. He says, look, this is what God has done. What do you think? And uh, she's like, well, you know, I, I got to go home and talk to my family. Another really good piece of advice, by the way. And so they go back home, and she happens to live with her brother, a guy named Laban. And the servant recounts the whole story, the prayer, the events, the water, the cat. He, he recounts the whole deal. And he's waiting to get permission from the family so that Rebecca will be released to go and marry Isaac. 
And so it comes down to verse 49. Of the, those are all those verses in the middle of this long chapter. Now we're jumping into verse 49. And now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, the servant is saying to Laban, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, okay, Laban, it all depends on you. If you give your permission, then I'm going to take the damsel and we're going to go back and I'm going to fulfill my mission. And if you don't give your permission, then I'm going to go back empty-handed because Abraham released me from the oath if she's not willing to come. So the family agrees. They're like, okay, and if you know a little bit about Laban and other study of the Bible, he probably saw the jewelry and he saw all the wealth this guy was carrying and he's like, this ain't a bad deal, so maybe this is a good... Okay, so he says, okay. So the servant's like, praise the Lord. So he pulls out the saddlebags, more jewelry. I mean, he gives more to Rebecca. He gives more to Laban. He, he gives, I mean, he's just pouring this thing out, man. He gives it to her mother. He gives a bunch of jewelry. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know how we lost the Bible culture, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> they throw a big party. They feast all night. And in the morning, the servant's like, all right, we did, we did the deal. It's time to go. So Rebecca's going with me, and we're going to go back to my master and his son. And Laban's like, yeah, hang around here 10 more days. And he's like, yo, we, we, said, we said we were doing this. So, look, you just got to decide. Either we're going to do it now or we're not going to do it now. And uh, so he says, okay. So he said, here's what we got to do. So you don't hinder this progress. Let's, let's just ask Rebecca. Nobody's really asked Rebecca yet. Let's ask Rebecca. So verses 57, 58, 59. And they said... <coughs> We'll call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. Ain't another good idea. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Key, wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Now, with all of that set up, and they're ready, that they went through the whole deal, and they are now agreed, and Rebekah is leaving with the servant. I want to read the last section of the chapter, starting in verse 61, down to verse 67. And Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well of Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It's my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So, in this series of events, we have several lessons, and that's what I want us to go through in the remaining time. The first lesson is this. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. Love is not a feeling, biblically. It's an action. It says in verse 67, he loved her. It's a verb. It's not a noun. If you feel something, that something is a noun. A verb is an action. It's something that you do. 
So you would say, well, what exactly does that look like? Well, it can look like a lot of different things. I have a few references for you. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, for example, love is associated with good works. So if you are going to actively demonstrate love for somebody, you will do them good. You will do good things for them. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 10 compares love with honoring and preferring the other over yourself. So what does true love do? It's selfless, and it serves the other's benefit even to the point of maybe doing without themselves. It is preferring the other above themselves. And so one application of that, for example, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 3, if you really love God, as it says in a couple of places in the Scriptures, you will keep his commandments because that honors the Lord. It demonstrates love for the Lord when you honor him to do what he says. And as it says in 1 John 5, his commandments aren't a pain in the neck. They're not grievous to you. You're willing and and happy to do it for your love for the Lord. That's an important thing. Love is not a feeling. He took her as his wife first, and he loved her after that. So we got to get the order right. Number two, love is a choice. Love is a choice. It's a choice for another's benefit. Isaac chose to love her after the deal was done. Yes, it was sort of an arranged marriage. The servant went out, and the families agreed, and Isaac was going to take whoever showed up because he trusted the Lord, and that was going to work out. Okay, all joking aside, that was what happened, okay? So he chose to love her. In times past, I've shared the story. My grandparents had an arranged marriage. They didn't know each other before they were told they were going to marry each other. And they lived happily ever after all their lives. And it was wonderful. They chose to love each other, even though that Hollywood feeling that we think love is never occurred prior to the wedding. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard people make this statement? Well, you can't choose who you love. You can't choose who you love. I mean, it just happens. Ridiculous. That is a bunch of baloney. That is, let me just say it this way, that's pagan mythology. That's Cupid's golden-tipped arrow. Somebody, oh, oh, I've been shot. I can't help myself. Oh, yes, you can. You better believe you can. Let me tell you something. You love whomever you want. That's who you love. And so, hear me with love, if you will. If you or your friend or your son or your daughter loves an idiot, it's because they want to. It's not because they can't help it. Love is a choice, friends. Number three, love is sacrificial. Love sacrifices. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. I couldn't possibly give you a better one. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself for it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us. He proved it. He demonstrated. He put it on display. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You think Christ had warm, fuzzy, goosebumpy feelings for an evil world of sinners that spit on him and yanked his beard out and crucified him? You think he just had that, ooh, I can't help loving your so wonderful people feeling? No. No. He chose to love us to the point of self-sacrifice. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he did it right? And to prove once again that it is a willing choice, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So true biblical love puts self aside for the benefit of the other. Number four, love is giving. You got to go to John 3.16. God so loved the world. I thought you said we're not supposed to love the world. Well, this is different because it's not the things of the world. God loved the people. How much he, he loved them so much that he gave his most beloved thing in the whole world, in the whole universe, his only begotten son. For our benefit, while we were yet sinners, he gave his most prized possession, the picture of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, so that we could benefit. That's how much God loves you today. 1 John chapter 4, you got to go to this passage, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, that's the key, the love of God toward us. How is it manifested? Because God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that sent his Son to be the propitiation, the payment, the sacrifice for our sins. That's how much he loved us. That's true love. It's sacrificial. And lastly, number five, the ultimate demonstration of love is the gospel. There's no question about it. And what I want you to see with me as we close is the gospel presentation in Genesis chapter 24. It's a beautiful picture because Father Abraham, representing God the Father, takes his unnamed servant, representing the Holy Spirit, to go out into the world to find a bride, Rebecca, a bride, the church, for his son, Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ. You tracking? So God the Father, what is God? This Genesis 24 is a picture of what happened in all of our lives. It's the gospel. God the Father so loved us, right? He sent the Holy Spirit into this world to find the bride of Christ that he could marry to his son Isaac. And just like when the servant met Rebecca and he was explaining, hey, I had this deal with the water and you said you'd feed my camels and that's what I prayed and 
I think God's in the midst of this. And Rebecca's like, I think so too. Because anytime you come in contact with the Holy Spirit of God working in your life, you just kind of know there's something special going on here. But at the end of the day, she didn't have to go with the servant. She was not overwhelmed by irresistible grace. She had a free will to choose. And so when the Bible says, wilt thou go with this man? That's God's call to salvation for you and for me. And when Rebecca said, I'll go. That's the day I got saved. I'll go. I'll go with this man. So, man, praise the Lord. You come out of that, and you come into verse number 60. Once she said, I'll go, it blessed Rebecca, our, our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate him. So she's blessed. She's fruitful. Because she followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 61. Rebecca arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebecca and went his way. The servant didn't take Rebecca and go her way, they went his way. Because when the church, when we respond to the call and say, I will go, we have to go the way that the Holy Spirit leads us step by step. And all along the journey, can you imagine what that journey was like? She's never met Isaac. So all along the journey until she meets Isaac, she's asking the servant, tell me about him, will you? What's he like? What's it going to be like? And the servant starts telling her all about who Isaac is, all about Abraham, all about the family, all about the blessings, all about the promises. And she's getting excited. Okay, it doesn't say that, but you got to know it's true because you know it's true in our lives because you know what that is? That's our Christian life. We are currently, we've said yes to Jesus, but we haven't met him yet. And we are on the journey on the camel with the servant going his way. And what is our Christian life all about? It's asking the Holy Spirit of God through his word, what's he like? What's it gonna be like? Tell me more about him. Tell me about his family. Tell me about God. Tell me about the blessings. Tell me about his father. I wanna know all about him. That's verse 65, right? What man is this that walked in the field to meet us? It's my master, (laughs) She took a veil and covered herself. Why? Because the church is a mystery in the Bible. And so eventually, what happens? Man, Isaac sees her coming from a distance. And she sees Isaac coming from a distance. And what does it say? Verse 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off her camel. No, she didn't smoke a cigarette. She lighted off her camel. (laughs) It's the rapture of the church. I mean, boom, she was gone. I mean, 
It's a beautiful picture. You're all going to do that. You're going to do that cigarette joke, aren't you? It's the rapture of the church, man. She met him halfway. It wasn't all the way back at his house, and it wasn't all the way back at her house. You know what the Bible says? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and we that are alive and remain shall rise to meet him in the air. Ever shall we be with the Lord. You know what's going to happen when we meet him in the air? Well, there's an event we're not that excited about. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And that's verse 66. Because when we meet him, what's going to happen? The servant told Isaac all things that he had done. Now, you know, I don't know how you think in your mind, and sometimes we play out the judgment seat of Christ like we're going to be standing in front of the Lord like this, and there's going to be a giant movie screen and all the stupid things we ever did. And, you know, people think of weird stuff. On the authority of Genesis 24 and the picture God's painting for us, you got nothing to say. The Holy Spirit's going to tell the story. Hey, Christian, you know who lives inside of you? Hey, Christian, you know that everywhere you go, he goes? Hey, Christian, you know everything you say, he says? You know there's nothing you've ever done since the day you said yes to Isaac that's a secret from the Holy Spirit? You know that, right? You know that you're going to meet Isaac halfway? You're going to meet the Lord Jesus? And the Holy Spirit is going to give a report. That's the judgment seat of Christ, man. And you know what? There's some junk I don't want him to give a report on. There's some stuff I wish he wouldn't give a report. But he will. Listen, you know what? That's a real love story. That's a love story that Hollywood's never going to do. But I want to ask you a couple of questions and we're done. This Valentine's Day, if you're not sure that you're saved and this interests you, there's only one question for you. Wilt thou go with this man? Will you say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ today? It can be today. And for most of us that would say we've already done that, and you think about your life since you've received Christ, and you think about the Holy Spirit has been with you every step of the way. Maybe there's some stuff you need to get taken care of. Maybe there's some stuff before that day comes that you just repent of and you beg God to forgive you now. And you get your heart and your life right with Jesus now because we're still on that journey. We haven't met him yet. And he'll take care of it. But that's up to you. Whether in salvation, whether in sanctification, you have a free will. And you can do whatever you want. I know what the Lord wants. This is your chance. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father.